As you know, yesterday marked the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. The memories of that day are etched permanently into the minds of each one of us who were alive at the time. It was a dark day, wasn't it? Filled with unimaginable evil and horror. Yet one that was marked by undeniable bravery and heroism. As President Bush noted yesterday in his speech, it's a day that changed us all in some way. You know, after 9-11, there was a renewed spiritual interest across the United States. Remember that. According to research, 90% of Americans claim to have turned to prayer, religion, or spiritual feelings at some level to deal with the tragedy of that day. 44% said that they relied on those things heavily. According to Gallup polls, church attendance nationally rose 6% the weekend after the attack from the weekend before. People instinctively and corporately seemed to recognize their need for help and the protection of a higher power. Yet sadly, according to those same polls, by November, church attendance had returned to pre-9-11 numbers. We know that the Lord did indeed use the events of 9-11 to drive people to genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our own Jerry and Helene Weissman are living testimonies to that fact. They became Christians in Queens, New York on September the 14th, 2001. But overall, the research indicates no significant national revival due to 9-11. For many, the religious fervor and renewed interest in God quickly dissipated as the immediacy of the tragedy faded. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, that saving faith isn't merely about feelings of desperation or a generic sense of need stirred up by a crisis. Rather, the faith that saves is a wholehearted embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. It's recognizing that Jesus is singularly unique in his authority and supremacy over all things, and that he did all that was necessary through his life and his death and his resurrection to rescue those who would trust in him. Friends, our passage today in Matthew 8 teaches us about this very thing, about the nature of saving faith and the unique supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 8. It's on page 813 of the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, again, I did this about a month ago. I'm calling another audible this week. We're going to shorten our passage. Our text today is going to be Matthew 8, 18 to 34. Then we'll jump into Matthew 9 next week. As a reminder of where we, we, are, where we are here in Matthew, in Matthew 8 and 9, Matthew showcases for us Jesus's authority evidence in his miraculous works. His miracles, friends, were like billboards advertising what Jesus had been preaching and teaching, that in his person and work, God's kingdom had arrived. In Jesus, God's sovereign rule over all other kingdoms and all other so-called gods had drawn near. All authority belongs to the king. In our passage this morning, Matthew continues this theme of Jesus's unmitigated authority. Whereas the first three miracles that we looked at last week in chapter 8 focused on his authority to heal, the second grouping of three miracles highlights Jesus' authority over the entire cosmos. He rules over nature and the demonic realm and possesses in himself the authority to forgive human sin. Matthew, though, he bridges these two sets of three miracles with a brief interlude about what it means to follow Jesus and Jesus' rightful authority 
over every, over every area of our lives. So let's read together, starting in verse 18, we'll read down to the end of the chapter, Matthew 8. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And the scribe came up to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Friends, I think the main idea of this text of verses 18 to 34 of Matthew 8 is this. I trust it'll be the main idea of the sermon. Following Jesus will cost you everything, but he is infinitely worthy of such a cost. Following Jesus will cost you everything, but he is infinitely worthy of such a cost. Two points this morning, just breaking up that main idea. Following Jesus will cost you everything, And indeed, Jesus is worthy of such a cost. And we'll look at that that worthiness through his ruling over nature and his reigning over the demonic realm. Beloved, I pray that today our Lord Jesus by his spirit would stamp on your soul this morning a sense of the high cost and the high privilege of following the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you might see afresh the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things and that what you see might compel you to give him your supreme allegiance. Number one, following Jesus will cost you everything. Verse 18 is instructive for us in our understanding of Jesus' ministry. His miraculous works attracted a crowd, but Jesus was never interested in appealing to the masses. His aim was not to, to draw high numbers or to tailor his ministry to attract the most people. Otherwise, friends, he would have stayed in Capernaum. Instead, he gave orders to go to the other side. The movement of Jesus across the Sea of Galilee seems like a parable of his ministry philosophy. He was perfectly fine to trim down the numbers so that his true followers might understand who he is and what he came to do. Verse 19 says an expert in the Jewish law called a scribe 
approached Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, at face value, that sounds positive, doesn't it? We know that throughout Jesus' ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees were, were hostile to Jesus. So the fact that this scribe thought highly of him and wanted to follow him seems commendable. But Jesus must have sensed that this man had not fully counted the cost of what it meant to follow him. One hint may be that the scribe addressed Jesus as teacher. He viewed him as a Jewish rabbi. Again, it seems respectful enough, but I think it's significant that nowhere else in Matthew's gospel do we see a committed follower of Jesus addressing him as teacher. Instead, they call him what? They call him Lord. The scribe seemed eager to glean from the teaching of Jesus, but he wasn't ready to give his life to him. Friend, I wonder if that's you this morning. You come to church because you appreciate the teachings of Jesus Christ. You admire the ethical system attached to Christianity. Perhaps you see its benefit for society. You love the community that a local church brings, but you have not bowed your knee to King Jesus as your Lord. Listen to Jesus' response. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a, it's a bit of a strange response, isn't it? But it gets to the heart of the issue. Jesus didn't thank the scribe or, or welcome him into his inner circle, but rather he alluded to his sufferings to help the scribe understand what he could expect if he followed Christ. Friends, the, the scribe had not counted the cost of what it meant to follow Jesus. And so Jesus compared the relative comfort of the beasts of the earth to his own poverty and the transience of his ministry. Given the fact that Jesus was frequently on the move, he had no permanent home. He was often dependent on the, on the hospitality of others. And sometimes, as the text indicates, he didn't even have a normal place to sleep. Last time I checked, a foxhole or a bird's nest isn't exactly the Hilton, but at least the foxes and the birds had a normal place to call home. It was not so with Jesus. He told the scribe, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Perhaps you're wondering why Jesus spoke in the third person. That's a little strange. Is he some sort of diva? That's who usually speaks in the third person in our day and age. No. But this is one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. He repeatedly referred to himself this way throughout the gospel. So we better understand what the Son of Man means. Well, first of all, Jesus, friends, is using language from the Old Testament. There are really two ways that the phrase the Son of Man appears in Old Testament Scripture. One simply is to emphasize one's humanity. God addressed Ezekiel the prophet as the Son of Man. Psalm 8 talks about the Son of Man. So Jesus is a full-on Son of Adam, right? He's referring to His his, his humanity, his, even his lowliness and his suffering. But there's also another huge way. It's a massive way that the, the phrase Son of Man is used in the Old Testament. It appears in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where, where the Son of Man is this kingly figure who's given universal authority by the Ancient of Days. He's given glory and a kingdom, and all peoples fall down and worship him. This picture of the Messiah in Daniel certainly is, is, is of a human. 
But this, this son of man in Daniel approached the ancient of days riding on the clouds of heaven. I know of no human king who can do that. So Daniel's son of man pictures the human king who is also divine. Later in Matthew, Jesus is going to be very explicit about what he means by the son of man. But even here where it's more ambiguous, we should understand understand him giving himself this, this exalted designation. It's an exalted title, as high as you could possibly imagine. There is no, no more exalted station on the earth than that of the son of man. So friend, if that's the case, what Jesus says here about what the Son of Man does shatters our preconceived notions of His kingship and what He came to do. He didn't come to live in the royal palace with every comfort afforded a king. Rather, He had nowhere to lay His head. Think of this. The one worthy to ride on the clouds of heaven had no consistent place to sleep. What a paradox of grace. Before he would be exalted, our king lived in humility and suffering until it escalated with his betrayal and his death on the cross. And so Jesus called the scribe, even as he calls us, to count the cost. To follow Jesus, to be a Christian, is to follow in the footsteps of the Son of Man. It's to dethrone every rival little G God so that Jesus might reign in our lives. Jesus is calling the scribe and he's calling us to renounce the stuff of earth that has a stranglehold on our hearts. Friends, if you, if you say you want to follow Jesus, but only as long as Jesus lets you keep your middle class lifestyle, you are not ready to follow him. You're not ready to be his disciple. Beloved, Jesus' statement doesn't mean that following Christ is by nature without comfort and security. I own a home. I have a consistent place to sleep, and it's even a king-sized bed. I hope I'm not in sin. We're not saying that following Christ is by nature without comfort or security, but rather it means that following Christ does not promise me earthly comfort and security nor should my love of Jesus be dependent upon those things. Friends, if the path of obedience cost you your comfortable middle-class existence, would you love Jesus still? If the path of obedience entailed the loss of a job or, or financial instability, would you still follow the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart? A day may be coming in, in these United States where the reality may be that, that Christians are social pariahs like they are in many places around the globe. Are you willing to follow Christ into that type of life of suffering? Friends, Jesus is not interested in halfway followers. He's not after Christians in name only to gather the masses, but rather he's here to gather those who fully embrace him by faith and follow him no matter the cost. Now, friends, you may think that this sounds like salvation by works, but no, Jesus isn't teaching us to impoverish ourselves so, so that we might obtain eternal life. Rather, he's teaching us about the nature of saving faith. Friends, the type of faith that saves lays hold of Christ as your supreme treasure, as more valuable than any creature comfort this world has to offer. It's faith that worships Christ and Christ alone. 
Friends, listen, the Bible's message is that salvation is gloriously and graciously free, but it will cost you everything. So brothers and sisters, when we as elders think about our life together, even as a church, about the the priorities of this church, about the rhythms, about the church schedule and so on, our governing concern is not convenience. Don't worry. We're not structuring things to be as inconvenient as possible. That's not it either. We want to prefer people. But beloved, following Jesus together will at times be inconvenient, both individually in your life and your serving others, right? Interacting with other believers here in the body who, guess what, are sinners? It's going to require you to inconvenience yourself. And it may require inconvenience corporately. Now, we recognize that coming back on a, on a Sunday evening to pray together is inconvenient. It's not the most convenient thing to do. But friends, if Jesus has called us to pray together, then surely, surely inconvenience can't be the prevailing reasons why we choose not to do that. Friend, I encourage you, come back tonight. Come back and pray with your brothers and sisters. Look at verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus uses the term disciple very broadly here, as he frequently does in the Gospels. He doesn't mean to say that these these two men, the scribe and the other man, were committed followers, but merely that they followed him physically to see his works and to learn from him. Like the scribe, this man wanted to follow Jesus. But friends, he wanted to delay his full commitment to Christ until after after he had taken care of his basic family responsibilities for the duration of his father's lifetime. You might think by this man's request, let me first go bury my father, that the man's father had already died and that he's asking for a day or two delay in order to make the proper arrangements. But if that were true, would the man have been on the roadside with Jesus? No, I don't think so. Very likely not. He would have been busy making preparations and for the funeral and keeping vigil and mourning with his family. This phrase, let me bury my dead, seems to be shorthand for let me wait until my father dies until I have no further family commitments, and then I'll follow you. He's asking for an indefinite postponement of discipleship. He's asking for years, not days. Jesus responded, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, let those who are spiritually dead be primarily concerned about family affairs. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. You follow me. It's a shocking claim, isn't it? It almost appears to fly right in the face of the fifth commandment, honor your your father and mother. His claim cuts across millennia of deeply rooted cultural expectations that a person must be unfailingly loyal to his or her blood family. Even today, Jesus' words strike us as harsh. Is Jesus really forbidding us from handling the affairs of our parents' funeral? Really? After all, Paul instructed Christians about the importance of caring for our parents in their time of need. Doesn't following Christ often include care for our parents and family? Well, yes, of course, it often does. What Jesus is doing here, he's shocking our senses, isn't he, about where our fundamental allegiance ought to lie. He did this in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about lust. Do you remember that? What did he say? If your right hand offends you, cut it off. 
If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. It's a graphic way of portraying the need to take radical action to fight sin. I think that's what he's doing with this statement. Let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus is communicating in an unforgettable way. I am better than family relationships. His kingdom reign is so thorough that where Jesus' kingdom priorities clash with family ties, friends, Jesus ought to win. In, in Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Beloved, think how high a Christology is implied in Jesus' statement. He isn't calling us to just follow God over our family. He's calling us to follow Him. Friend, he, he's either a madman or he's the Messiah. As Lewis said, he's either a lunatic or he's the Lord. By nature, the gospel of Jesus Christ divides between those who embrace Jesus and those who reject him. Even family members at times will be split about their allegiance to Jesus. So often it's the case that the choice to follow Jesus involves the risk of losing relationship with family. Friends, you understand, don't you, that in many places around the world today, to become a Christian, built into that decision to become a Christian, is the risk of losing family. Think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan that we've been praying for. To become a Christian in a, in a Muslim context, at best, means family ostracism. And at worst, depending on the government strictness, could cost you your life. Years ago, a stat came out that the average life expectancy of an Afghan believer after he became a Christian was two weeks. Either Jesus is worth that risk or he is not. But friends, we know that he is. Jesus said in Mark 10, Truly I say to you that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children's or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Those who lose family relations because of allegiance to Jesus are welcome into his family. We gain brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in my pastoral experience thus far here in Goodyear, Jesus' exclusive authority over family comes up most often in relation to baptism. Several times in the last year, I've counseled brothers and sisters who, who feared that by publicly identifying themselves with Jesus, they would risk losing relationship with their parents. And I understand those concerns. I do. Family ties run deep. But what a joy it has been to, to hear them reach a conclusion. I sure hope my family doesn't cut me off. But even if they do, I know Jesus is worth it. Friends, why do you think that Jesus prescribed baptism as a first step of obedience when someone becomes a Christian? One of the reasons is, is that it offers a public test of allegiance right off the bat. If a person professes Christ, but, but he or she is not willing to publicly identify themselves with Christ, then what confidence can we really have that that person is indeed Christ? 
those who submit themselves to follow King Jesus can think of no higher privilege than to publicly identify themselves with him in the waters of baptism, to stand with Jesus' people, and to raise his flag over their lives. Friends, I I hope you appreciate Jesus' honest approach here in Matthew. He doesn't lure followers with the sugar stick of salvation, but sugarcoat how it's really going to be when you follow him. There's no fine print hidden from your view. It's right out there in the open. Following Jesus Christ will cost you everything. But Jesus is infinitely worthy of such a cost. Let's look at this second point. It may seem that what Jesus asks of his of his followers is just devastatingly hard. But friends, look who it is that we gain. We gain the king of heaven and earth. We gain the one who reigns over every earthly and spiritual power. Let's look at his ruling over nature together. Verse 23 indicates that Jesus and his inner circle of disciples got into a boat to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get away from the crowds. Verse 24 starts, and behold. (laughs) That's Matthew's way of saying, visualize this with your mind, right? Suddenly, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. It was not uncommon, friends, for, for storms to blow through this region, but this storm seemed to be unique in its ferocity. If you were to read Matthew 8, what is that, 28, is that right? Lost my place. About the storm. Uh, uh, nope, sorry. Verse 24. If you were to read Matthew 8, 24 in the original Greek, you would read something like this. And there arose a great shaking on the sea. It's the word seismos. It's where we get our word seismic, right? It's an earthquake. The storm was so violent that it was as if nature itself was quaking. Throughout the New Testament, this word seismos is is frequently connected with God's judgment. So it may be that Matthew picked this word to you so that we understand that in this violent storm, judgment was at hand. Notice that when Jesus calmed the storm, he didn't merely command it. He rebuked it. It's the same word used later in Matthew for his rebuking of the demonic powers. When you consider that Jesus was on his way to a a direct encounter with two demons on the other side of the lake, Matthew wants us to see in the stilling of the stormy sea a forecasting of judgment on Satan and his demonic allies. In the ancient world, friends, the chaotic waters often symbolized evil and the forces of darkness. Think about our call to worship this morning. Our call to worship read this. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Now, this is not the Rahab. This is not the Rahab of the Joshua story. But Rahab, the mythological sea monster that represented the forces of chaos and evil. It's like the Godzilla of the ancient world. The psalmist pictured Yahweh's enemies as embodying the sea monster Rahab and symbolizing evil. So by crushing the monster and ruling the sea, Yahweh proves that he reigns over every evil power. So is it possible? Is it possible that Satan whipped up this storm on Galilee as a bit of a perimeter defense against Jesus as he crossed the lake? 
Maybe. But even if the storm isn't attributable to Satan, I think we're to see in Jesus's authority over the physical realm, over nature, his authority over every power in heaven and on earth. He's come to crush the head of the serpent. <laughs> we see this ancient prophecy from Genesis 3.15 coming to fruition even in his journey across the sea. Naturally, this storm terrified Jesus' disciples. Some of them were skilled fishermen, and they were scared out of their socks. They had navigated this lake many times, but yet they were terrified. The boat was being overwhelmed by the waves. They were fearing for their lives. And so who did these experienced seamen turn to in their moment of crisis? The carpenter's son, asleep on the other side of the boat. Jesus was, was fully human. He grew weary and fatigued from physical and, and spiritual exertion. And yet, friend, you can't help but see in his sleeping a glorious contrast between this, this frantic fear of the disciples and the unperturbed rest of Jesus. The entire situation was under his control. Verse 25, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? I think it's significant that Jesus dealt with the disciples before he dealt with the storm. It highlights his, his control over the situation. He was not in a rush, but it also emphasized the gravity of their lack of trust in him. It's not that they had no faith. After all, they recognized his power enough to wake him up and to call on him to save them. But clearly their faith had been deluged by their fears. They weren't resting fully on the one who was in the boat with them. They did not yet understand who he was. Friends, who do you turn to in times of crisis? Your own resources? The bottle? Entertainment to fill up the extra space? Hobbies? Friends, times of intense crisis in our life often function like God's x-ray machine into the resources, recesses of our hearts. God uses these times like, like a divine spotlight to illuminate whether we're leaning on the everlasting arms or whether we're leaning to our own understanding. There are many, countless, legitimately scary things in this world. Just take COVID-19 as an example. This, the uncertainty and the unpredictability of this virus, friends, has, has captured our attention in the last year and a half. But it is not a new phenomenon. COVID-19 has only escalated an already present reality. We are not in control. Like at all. Like zero control. And so we're faced with the choice every day of our lives. Will we exercise faith in the one who is in the storm with us and let that faith in Jesus chase away our fear or will our fears chase away our faith? Then Jesus rose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. I imagine Jesus rebuking the winds and the waves like I rebuke my kids. A little sanctified imagination, right? Stop it! Now, peace, be still. 
How many of you have been out in the open water after a storm? Any of you in the open water during a storm? My guess is that when the, when the storm died down, the waves died down gradually as the storm began to subside. But not here. At the sound of Jesus' authoritative voice, the storm subsided in a moment, in an instant, and the sea was as smooth as glass. Jonathan Lehman wrote, it's worth meditating for a moment on what actually happened when Jesus said to the winds and the waves, peace be still. Particles of nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen listened. Electrons and protons obeyed. Can you explain that? The disciples couldn't. Verse 27 says, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? Perhaps the disciples had a growing realization that Jesus wasn't merely performing works enabled by God, but he was doing things that only God could do. In the Old Testament, only God ruled over the waters. At creation, God spoke into the watery darkness and formed the earth. In the flood, God's voice of majesty told the waters when to advance and when to recede. In the Exodus, God caused the waters of the Red Sea to separate so that his people walked across on dry ground. You read in Psalm 65 and Psalm 89, as we did this morning, Psalm 104 and Psalm 107, as we did this morning, that it's Yahweh alone who rules the raging of the waters. Friends, when Jesus rebuked the storm, he did so as the God of the storm and as the Lord of creation. This event on the sea gives us a whole new insight to what Matthew told us back all the way back in chapter one. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Beloved, why ought you be willing to follow Jesus at such a high cost? Because look, look who it is whom you follow. He's the king of creation. We follow Jesus by faith because he created and subdues the cosmos by the word of his power. We have no need to be afraid of what intimidates us and opposes us in this life. Beloved, I can't guarantee you that Jesus will calm storms of your life like he calmed the storm of that day. I cannot guarantee that. Some storms may last a lifetime. But Jesus will not let you capsize. Nothing can touch a hair of your head without his permission. He rules the raging seas so that they only accomplish his good purpose for you. And you will make it safely to the other side with him in the boat. Number two, or letter B, Jesus reigns over the demonic realm. The demonic realm hinted at on the Sea of Galilee now comes into clear view, doesn't it, when Jesus reaches the other side. The text says that it was the country of the Gadarenes. It was the region of the Decapolis, a predominantly Gentile area of 10 cities. Decapolis, little, little 10 city word there. If you don't know the geography of, old, of uh, New Testament Palestine, uh, you don't even have to know that geography to know that this was a Gentile area. You know why? 
the herd of pigs, right? You're not going to find that in the Jewish part of Palestine. When Jesus and the disciples arrived on the other side, they were welcomed by a hospitality committee from hell. Friends, I'm aware that here in the sophisticated, secularized West, the topic of the demonic realm sounds absurd. It's the stuff of Hollywood horror flicks. But if you travel to many places around the world today, you will encounter still a strong belief in and understanding of a realm ruled by unseen spiritual forces. Here in the text, what Matthew sees as abnormal is not the presence of a demon-possessed man, but the authority of Jesus to rule over the demons by his mere word. The demons had such a hold on these two men that, that they lived among the dead. They lived in the tombs. They were, they were violent. Nobody could come near them except, apparently, for Jesus. Friends, I find what the demons spoke to Jesus absolutely shocking. Look at verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment, torment us before the time? Friends, who would have thought that it would be the demons who would teach us our Christology, right? They rightly knew the answer to the question that the disciples had asked in the boat. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, the demons knew already. He's the son of God. He's the second person of the Godhead. He's the king. Friends, the demon's address of Jesus reminds us that saving faith is not made up of knowledge alone, but on loving obedience to Jesus. It's not enough to know accurately who Jesus is. You must bow your knee to him in willing submission. Maybe James, the brother of Jesus, had this event in the background of his mind when he wrote in James 2.19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Friends, the demons have all the knowledge they need, but they will descend into the lake of fire one day, believing intellectually the right things. Knowledge is not enough. It's not enough for you to know that Jesus was a remarkable person or that he did miracles or even that he died on the cross. I guarantee you, hell will be full of people who know the gospel. The question is, is Jesus Christ your Lord have you given him your life? The demons not only recognized Jesus' person, they understood his work. They asked him, have you come here to torment us before the time? What time? The time when they would be judged. The demons knew that judgment day awaited them for their rebellion against God and that the one to whom God had committed the gavel of judgment was the man standing before them whom they identified as the Son of God. Jesus talks about this final day of judgment in Matthew 26, that He, the Son of Man, whom we've already understood what that means, the Son of Man will say to those on His left, depart from Me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Friends, this is who the demons are. They are fallen angels who followed Satan in rebellion against God. The demons know that they are on borrowed time. Judgment Day awaits them. Friends, I, I wonder if you also have an intuitive sense of future judgment. That a day is coming 
when you will have to give an account of your life before God, the righteous judge. You know, my guess is whether or not you're a Christian, there's something deep in your soul that tells you that you are not autonomous, that you are accountable to your Creator. Friends, even if it's a small sense of that, let that sense unsettle you. Let it drive you to Jesus who lived and died and rose again for all of those who would repent of their sins and trust in Him. Through Christ, you can stand with confident assurance on Judgment Day that your fate will not be with Satan and his angels, but with the redeemed. In verses 30 to 32, the demons anticipate what Jesus is about to do, and they ask him for permission to enter a herd of of pigs upon their exit from the man. The text doesn't tell us that Jesus sent them into the pigs, but merely he just spoke the word, go. And the demons immediately obeyed. Think about it. Like for years, likely. For years, they had held these men in bondage. But at Jesus' word, they released their grip on these men and they fled. Can I just make a side observation real quick? This is not the main point. People are more valuable than pigs. People are more valuable than pigs. What should strike you here isn't sadness about the pigs, but rejoicing for the deliverance of two human beings, two image bearers set free from the demons. Beloved, what Jesus is doing in his exorcisms is invading and breaking down the demonic ramparts of Satan's kingdom. When Jesus' kingdom reign moved in, the gates of hell cannot stand against it. The pigs running headlong down the hill into the lake of Galilee previews the day when the demons will be hurled into the lake of fire. Jesus' exorcisms are like preview judgments. Like his healings, they're snapshots on the roll of the coming kingdom. I can't help but think of the world that C.S. Lewis created in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Narnia had been under the spell of the White Witch for a hundred years. It was always winter, but never Christmas. And yet when Aslan was on the move, even before he broke the witch's spell for good, what happened? The winter began to thaw. Patches of green appeared and then flowers bloomed and waterfalls rushed through the forest again. Winter thawed into spring because the king had come. Friends, this is what Jesus has come to do. Above all, Jesus' exorcisms point the way to a bloody cross into an empty tomb. They're like airport runway personnel, right? Pointing the way to the terminal. Pointing the way to the final destination in the black of night. The author of Hebrews writes that through Jesus' death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Paul wrote in Colossians 2 that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, speaking of the demonic powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I love that. Friends, the encounter between Jesus and the demons reminds us that there is no spiritually neutral territory on this earth. There's no spiritual 
neutral, spiritually neutral territory. There's no place where there isn't spiritual warfare for kingdom turf. But this passage also reminds us that D-Day has already taken place. The invasion was successful, friends. The turf has been reclaimed through a blood-bought people that have been rescued from the jaws of death. Hallelujah, we sing, for the war he fought. Love has won. Death has lost. D-Day is behind us, and and V-E Day awaits us when Jesus the King returns. Full victory will be realized, and Satan and his angels will be judged forever. Friends, this is the reality for us as Christians. As fierce as Satan and his demons may be, friends, you have no need as a believer. Listen, you have no need to fear the demonic realm. Because the Spirit of God takes up residence in the lives of believers, demons cannot dwell there. There's no threat of a Christian being possessed by a demon. Praise God. And yet, because Satan is a defeated foe, he rages in anger against the Lord Jesus and against his church. From the sneering hostility of of a co-worker to government-sanctioned persecution, we need to remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 6. But friends, we have to read Ephesians 6 in light of Ephesians 1. Listen to what Paul wrote in verse 20 of Ephesians 1. That the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to whom? To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, in other words, Christ defeated the demonic powers and is seated on the throne of the universe. Why? For the benefit of his people. He rules over every rival power for the good of his church, for the ones for whom he died. That's why we follow Jesus, no matter the cost. Because we follow the one who has freed us from slavery to sin and death. We follow the one who has subdued every rival power so that he might deliver every blessing that he has secured for us, both now and forever. In verses 33 and 34, the herdsmen fled the scene after the pig stampede. And they told the people in the city everything that had happened. Text says that the people of the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Why? Why did people have such a visceral response against Jesus? Was it simply because of the monetary loss of the pig herd drowning? We're given no indication that that was the issue here. Zero. Instead, Matthew wrote in verse 33 that they zeroed in on what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Do you see that in verse 33? especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then verse 34 seems to indicate that it was something about Jesus when they saw Jesus that provoked their reaction against him. 
instead of being thankful that the demoniacs had been delivered, instead of asking Jesus, hey, stay here a while, right? <laughs> do, do more things for us. Show us more of who you are. They were terrified by one who had that type of power. They didn't like having someone with authority over the demonic realm in their midst. These townspeople were not marked by skepticism due to ignorance like we may be here in our day. They knew that Jesus had authority over the demonic realm. Rather, they did not understand why he had come. They didn't understand that he had not come to wield his authority against them. He wasn't in league with Satan. Rather, he had come to restore and to heal and to save and to give life. They thought that by pushing Jesus away, they could remain safe. And yet the irony is that that action sealed their doom. Friend, don't reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't push him away. Instead, follow him by faith and entrust him with your life. Following Jesus will cost you everything, but he is infinitely worthy of such a cost. Let's pray. Father, I don't know all the different situations that our church finds our our church members find ourselves in this morning and our guests with us this morning. I don't know what type of fears are arising in their hearts these days, what what uh what adversities and what obstacles they are finding to to joy and life in you. I don't know the the fears that are arising, the things that are that are scaring them. I don't know what their hesitations are, all of them, about uh, of, of, of whether or not they're going to follow Jesus with their whole heart, whether or not they're going to step out publicly and identify themselves with him. I don't know all those things, but you do. And so, Father, I pray that you would take the word that was preached this morning and like a surgeon, precisely cut our hearts where they need to be cut and call us where we need to be called and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Father, give saving faith to those who need it this morning. Call them to repentance. Call the lost sheep home, Father. Help them to want nothing more in this life than Jesus Christ as their supreme treasure. Father, help all of us who are believers in Jesus to see afresh this morning the awe of whom we serve, of who we serve. The one who stills the waves and the sea with his word the one whose very word casts out demons and destroys them forever. Lord, we thank you that we follow you, that you've, you're, you're utilizing all of this limitless power and limitless authority, not for our harm, but for our eternal good. That the waves that you send in our life bring us near to Christ, even as we're going to sing this morning in response. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.